Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19. We just read in Hebrews about the importance and the gravity of the crucifixion. Today we're going to be looking at the crucifixion itself. Last week we read about the trial. We studied through the trial of Jesus. And here we have his crucifixion. Chapter 19, beginning at the very end of verse 16 and end of verse 17, says this. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, on, on one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was, about to be, was, all was now finished, said to fill scripture, I thirst. A, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of the preparation, and so, uh, and so the, the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other two who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So he who saw it had borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with, with the spices, as, the, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had, been, uh, had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Lord, many of us have heard this toll over and over again. Not because the story is old, not because the story is worn out, but rather, Lord, I pray that you would give us new eyes for this passage. Because this passage is not dull. It is not worn out. Lord, this here is the central message of your entire word. Lord, all of Scripture finds its climax at this very moment in the crucifixion. God, I pray you would give us new eyes, refreshing, refreshed eyes to see the gravity of what is taking place here. And Lord, to see how it ties into Scripture and through all of Scripture. Lord, and to see how you have given life through this event. Praise in your name. Amen. Crucifixion is known throughout history as one of the most grotesque, um, terrifying, uh, extreme ways of torture ever invented by the human mind. Um, you may read the gospel narratives and read about Jesus' death and think, well, crucifixion must have been death by blood loss. And surely Jesus did lose lots of blood. But the way that crucifixion was designed was not to die by loss of blood, but rather to die by asphyxiation or by exposure or something of that nature. The crucifixion itself would take place, the, 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 uh, as we even see here in this passage, the, the person who was to be crucified would often have a sign that was given to them that showed what their crime was. They would hang that around their neck. They would be given the crossbar, and they would carry that to the place where they would be crucified. Now, at the place where they would be crucified, the top bar, the up and down bar, would generally have already been set in place. This would be, uh, the, it was set in such a way with a groove for the, for the crossbar to go into, and, and then the, that crossbar would be set, and the person would be literally just a, just, just a little bit off the ground. And so it's that kind of that hope, like I could just touch the ground, I'd be fine that you would be just above the ground where you couldn't uh, actually get down, right? You would be just, just held just slightly above ground. This, um, this torture then, when they, got, when they arrived at the place of crucifixion, again, as we saw last week, generally crucifixion involved a severe beating, uh, a, severe, uh, a severe torturous beating that we looked at last week with the, the cat of nine tails that would rip the flesh to pieces, leaving it hanging off the bones, quite literally. Um, and Jesus faced this same torture. Also, in addition to that, the, the moral or the, uh, the, um, uh, 
the ridicule and shame that we brought on a person. Once they reached the place of crucifixion, they would generally tie their arms down on the crossbar and generally would also, with their arms tied down, nail a spike through their wrists so that they could hang there. And then once they got them up on the, up on the top beam, they would give them what would sound like a support. They would nail their feet onto, onto a, a small board that might be on the bottom of the cross. What would happen is they would be hanging there, and the torturous part was to try to get breath. You could get to a place where you could just get enough breath, but you would lose energy over time. Most crucifixions, they would sit there for days while they were uh, left to exposure to animals uh, and whatever else might be there until, they, until the person died. In this particular case, we see that that's not what happened because of the, the events at Passover. But let us never forget that this was, this was torture of the worst kind. And this is what our Savior went through. This is what Jesus went through. Now in this, the way John frames this, there's really kind of seven movements that John flows us through. And before we get into uh, the, the actual sermon proper, the, 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 the outline itself, let's, let's kind of take a step back and kind of see how John is describing this narrative. In the first section, there's really kind of two major sections, um, verses 17 through verse uh, through verse 27 and then 28 through 42. It's kind of how John divides this section. In the first section, he has us, he directs the reader to look around the cross. Right? If you notice here, first, uh, first he describes the place and the procedure. Where is the cross? He, in verse 17, he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. So first of all, John wants us to look around and notice where Jesus is. Secondly, John calls us to look above the cross. Notice where it says here, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now what's interesting about this, this is so fascinating, what's interesting about this is, is Pilate, as we saw last week, Pilate, in his mind, he is having this kind of political debate with the Jews. Who's really in charge, right? Is Rome in charge or do the Jews govern themselves? And Pilate is kind of having this debate with them, his own private debate with them. This, this inscription was written as probably in, in, a, in a large sense as a way to kind of stick it to the Jews one last time. Hey, it's your king. Now again, little did Pilate know that just like Caiaphas before him, he was acting as a prophet, saying this is the king of the Jews. Because as we saw last week, Jesus is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. Amen. So we look above and we see this, this title. In fact, the, the, the Greek word that's used here is the word that we use for title. So there's already a royal idea, the way John describes this. It's, it's got this royal idea here, that this inscription, this title that is given to Jesus, this, this, uh, this, this block, this, this uh, board that would have had this inscription on it, this title was given to Jesus in, in a very royal way, uh, and it's giving a royal declaration. 
And it says many of the Jews read this inscription, they, again, still focusing on this inscription, the Jewish people, they see this and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we, don't, we, don't, want to, we don't want to say that, right? It should say he thinks he's the king of the Jews. And how does Pilate respond? What has been written has been written. I'm not changing it. Now we'll show, we'll, we'll look at a second at, at some of the significance of these things that, that is going on here that Pilate doesn't even realize is taking place. We'll look at the significance of this in a minute. Um, for now, let's continue looking at the way that John is, forced, is, is asking us to look. Third, the third movement here in the text, he asks us to look, he, he directs the reader to look below the cross. Right? You see here it says... Um, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took the garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. Now, most likely this was his outer garment, probably also his belt, his shoes, um, and, and, and maybe another, I can't remember what the other, oh, his head covering. Those are probably the four garments that they divide among themselves. It's probably not that they tore pieces of cloth apart. It's probably that they had these other pieces of garment, his belt, his shoes, his head covering, and his outer garment that they divided among themselves. And then... Now, again, there's only four soldiers there, and there's a fifth piece of, of garment. Now, check this out. Verse, uh, the, the, in, uh, at the end of verse 23, it says, it says uh, and also his tunic. Now, this word tunic here, it is for the inner garment, the, the, the inside garment. As we explained last week, part of the torture that took place here was, was part of this was exposure. The, the crucifixions would take place totally naked. Okay? Now, again, you've probably never seen a picture that represents Jesus on the cross that way because that's indecent, right? But this is really what's going on here. Jesus, this inner garment, this, the, the word for this inner garment literally means made by the skin, right? So this would have been Jesus' underwear if, in, in a sense, right? Come on, Hope. <laughs> She's giggling over here because I said underwear. Anyway, she, so this would be Jesus' undergarment, right? This is the last thing covering him. And they take this off of Jesus before, well, he, for his crucifixion. And look what it says here. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Now again, this is important. Notice that John causes us and wants us to look at and focus on the tunic. Why else would he give this detail? Now, we'll show, again, we're going to show in, this, in, the, in, the, in our next part of the message, we'll show why these things are significant. But for now, let's just look at the, the way John is arranging this. It says, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. In other words, they gambled for it, right? They, they, they kind of gambled. Okay, who's going to do it? Let's roll the dice and see who's going to get this. Um, but cast lots to use it shall be. And again, John shows some of the... Uh, it shows us uh, some of the significance here. It says this was to fulfill what the scriptures had said. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's sought of Psalm 22, verse 18. So the soldiers did these things. And then John brings us to the fourth thing he wants to look at. But standing by the cross of Jesus, or his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And also, we'll see here in just a second, there's also the disciple who Jesus loved. So the text wants us to look around the cross. Where is it low? Where is this at? Where is he being crucified? Look above the cross. Look below the cross. And now look in front of the cross at the family members that are sitting there. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own house. What Jesus essentially does here in this particular moment when he's speaking to these people. Remember, this is the second time. This is what's interesting here. Is this is the second time that Mary has been mentioned. The first time is in John chapter 2. The second time is here in John chapter 19. Both times, Mary is not mentioned by name. She's mentioned as the mother of Jesus. And if you remember all the way back to, what was it, probably September last year when we were in John chapter 2. Mary asks Jesus to do a miracle. She comes to Jesus as his mother, not as his Lord. Not with, not with coming to him as her Lord. She comes to Jesus as her son, not as her Lord. And Jesus clarifies that to her. You know, I don't have to do this because you tell me to. Now he did anyway. He performed the miracle anyway. But he clarified to her, you need to come to me as your Lord, not as my mother, right? And here now we see her, we see the mother of Jesus standing with family members and, sta- and uh, with, with two family members and standing with two disciples. Where is she numbered now? Among the disciples. She's numbered among the disciples. And in fact, Jesus changes a relationship here. He says to his disciple whom he loves, which is very likely John, the writer of this gospel. He says, he says, now this is your mother and this is your son. He has changed the relationship. Now, again, John's mom is probably still alive, right? He says, no, this is your mother because she's a disciple. You're a disciple. Now, the real relationship that matters is the relationship of disciples, the relationship of the church, right? He changes the focus of the relationship off of, off of uh, genetic family into spiritual family. He says, now, this is your mother. This is your son. This is the relationship now that I want you to, that I want you to focus on. And then the, then the, the second section begins. Now we have looked all around the cross. Now John forces us and asks the reader to focus on Christ himself. Look at this in verse 28. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Now the way, Jesus, the way John describes this is interesting, this this phrase that he says to fulfill scripture it's uh scholars love to debate this particular verse because it's fulfilling scripture is that is that phrase does that refer to the fact that now everything is complete or does that refer to the fact that now jesus thirsts which one is it well the the actually the original language is obscure and i think it's because it's both that john is saying all of this is fulfilling scripture All that's going on right now, now specifically, the fact that Jesus thirsts fulfills Scripture. But generally, all that is happening right now fulfills Scripture. And it says, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This this sour wine um, was very likely... Probably kind of like we would think of like Gatorade, right? This is what you give to the with what the uh, what the act what the uh, soldiers would have with them to quench their thirst, to give them a little bit more. There was no medicine in this, very likely not any medicine in this particular uh, mixture. That as as some people suggest, uh, it was not made to, to to torture to bring more torture. And oh, here's some medicine. Now you're gonna get tortured longer. Or it was probably just the this what the, the the soldiers had with them. This was kind of like their Gatorade, right? And here here he gives it to him. It's uh it's uh, sour wine and a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth and again there's some significance here which we'll get to later 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In the original Greek, this is one word, telestai. It is finished. With one word, Jesus finalizes the work of the cross. And notice what it says here. And he bowed his head. And he, being the subject, actively gave up his spirit. Whose choice was it to be crucified that day? Who was in complete control this entire time? Who gave up his life? The Romans didn't take his life from him. The Jews didn't take up his life from him. Jesus said earlier in the gospel, I give up my life. And here it's even described, it says he bowed his head, and this is still an active, an active verb. Uh, it's still with him as the, as the subject, and he gave up his spirit. So we see the, the, now we see the final words of the word. Remember John 1, Jesus is described as the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word is with God, and the word was God. And now Jesus finalizes the work of the cross with a word. The word finalizes with a word. Next, John gives some commentary about the death of Christ. Uh, he, he's, he's talking about how, how he had died, he'd given up his spirit, and the Jews were like, hey, it's Passover, we can't really have people hanging around on crosses right now, we really need to kind of like get these people off, kill them earlier, right? Suffocate them to death earlier by breaking their legs so they can't push themselves up anymore, right? And, uh, and so they were like, okay, well fine, whatever, we'll do that. And they get to Jesus, and what happens? He's already dead. They don't need to break his bones. Which again, it's significant. We'll get to this in a second. And then John gives some commentary here. Um, verse 35, this is interesting. I love this. John, John then speaks about himself here in verse 35. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. John says, I was there. I saw this happen. This is not somebody writing 100 years later trying to honor John or honor... This is John saying, look, I was there. I saw this. I've borne witness, and what I said is true. And he, that is the person who is writing this, knows that he is telling the truth. And if, at this point, who's the only disciple that's been mentioned standing before Jesus? The disciple whom Jesus loved, John. And he continues on in the, the, the last movement of the text. It shows, it, it highlights two lesser known disciples and the, and the burial they give for him. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Both of these men were very likely very wealthy. Um, uh, Joseph of Arimathea had a brand new tomb that he was waiting to use for his family. Um, that would have been a, a show of wealth and status. It was in a nice place. I mean, it's described as being in a garden as well, so it's probably a somewhat nice location. Um, also, Nicodemus is described here. This is a, the same guy from John chapter 3, you know, John 3, 16. That's that conversation with Nicodemus. And remember when Nicodemus left in chapter 3, we were uncertain whether or not he had become a believer. We see him midway through the gospel uh, giving some defense to Jesus. Hey, we should give him a trial first, and we should find out what's going on here. And Nicodemus kind of sticks up for Jesus a little bit when they just wanted to crucify him without a trial, without anything. Um, and, and, jo and Nicodemus kind of jumps in the narrative again, and here now we see him at the burial. And how is this described? Look at this. It says, 
It says, Nicodemus, who earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. It's 75 Roman pounds, or, or uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, Roman pounds or whatever. So this is, we don't, we don't know how much this mixture cost, right? We have no idea. So this is purely speculation. But what we do know, remember the, 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 uh, the lady who, who anointed Jesus' feet? She had a very special perfume that she used to anoint Jesus' feet. And it said it was one pound, which was about a year's worth of wages. Okay? Now, speculating, because we don't know how much this actually cost, speculating if this perfume had anywhere near the same value as that perfume that she used, he has 75 pounds of it. The, 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 the perfume that lady uses, one pound, which is equal to about one year's worth of wages. That's how much it cost. This is 75 pounds. This is almost a lifetime's worth of wages that he has brought for the burial. This is a burial for a king. Nicodemus, I believe, is showing his faith here in the way he proceeds with his burial. Now I want to go through, after we've looked through the structure of this and looked what John is doing, highlighted some of these things. First point we want to make today is we need to read Scripture through the lens of the cross. We've seen throughout the Gospel how John has interpreted Jesus according to the Old Testament Scriptures. He's shown how Jesus fulfills Scripture. Now why is this important? In fact, the, the earliest Christians first couple hundred years, this is how they would basically be describing what is Scripture. What, how do we know that the New Testament is Scripture? They would say that the New Testament is the apostolic or the way that the apostles interpreted Christ according to Scripture. So what makes a book Scripture? What makes the Bible Scripture? What makes any of it Scripture? For the earliest Christians, it's, it talks about Jesus. It's about Jesus. That's why we know it's scripture, right? The book of Hebrews, we have no idea who, the book, who wrote the book of Hebrews. It might've been Paul, it might've been Luke, it might've been somebody else, right? We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, so how can we trust it? What is the whole point of the book of Hebrews? Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. In fact, in, in the passage we read earlier, if you noticed, it says this, he did this so that scripture might be fulfilled. And, there's scripture quoted all throughout those, just those 18 verses there. Throughout the whole book of Hebrews, it's showing how Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament. And here John has done this as well in the way he's alluded to things. Some of it has been direct quotation. In this particular uh, passage, there is so much that is filled with, uh, with, with scriptural uh, allusions here. Uh, first of all, Jesus is crucified between two thieves. The Old Testament scriptures talk about how he, he was, and with his death, he was, he was, he was killed with between thieves, right? Now, again, these prophecies were any time, anywhere between 700 and 1,000 years before this actually happened. We've already seen. Pilate has no idea what he's doing. He doesn't, he's not on purpose. Like, I've got to make sure I fulfill this scripture passage here, right? He's just doing stuff. And he condemns Jesus to die, and he crucifies him between thieves, why? Because God knew it was going to happen the whole time. God knew exactly how it would take place. Let me give some more specific examples. 
Psalm 22 uh, is, is quoted here in verse, in, uh, in, in verse uh, 24, saying that they divided my garments among them. Right? Psalm 22 is a, is a, it starts out this way. Let me see if you recognize this. It starts out this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you heard that before? In other, in, in other of the Gospels, Jesus, one of the things he says on the cross is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm. It is about the death of Christ. Amen. A thousand years before Jesus was ever born, David wrote a song that was put together in a book that declares the death of Christ Amen. in detail. Right? They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And what do we find the soldiers doing? Unbeknownst to them, saying, hey, we got this, this last piece of clothing here. Let's, let's cast lots for it. Leviticus chapter 21 and verse 10. It's one of the, one of the uh, instructions about the priesthood. Leviticus is a book that mostly focuses on the priesthood. One of the things that's in Leviticus uh, chapter 21 and verse 10, it tells the high priest that his clothing must not be torn. And here we have John focusing in on a tunic, focusing in on a piece of clothing that is one piece of clothing and it is not torn. Huh. What have we already seen about Jesus? That he is the true high priest. So Jesus in his very clothing is functioning as the high priest. And John highlights this in the text to point us back to it. Hey, look at this garment. It's not split. It's one piece of garment. Now again, be kind of, that's kind of weird, right? We're telling a story about somebody dying. And like, hey, look at the clothes. Right? Now some of you ladies might think, that's obvious. Why wouldn't you do that, right? Why wouldn't you say look at their clothes? Right? But this is a, it's an odd detail. Why would John bring out this detail unless it was to show that he is the true high priest? Psalm 69, verse 21. Let me go ahead and read this, this one. Uh, Psalm 69, verse 21 says this, They gave me poison for food, from, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. What does that sound like? Remember, John said this whole thing is all happening because Scripture would be fulfilled. Scripture would be fulfilled. He said, Scripture would be fulfilled. He said, I thirst. And what do they give him? Sour wine to drink. Well, Psalm 69 knew that one a long time ago, didn't it? Here we have Jesus fulfilling that Scripture. Numbers chapter 9 describes the Passover lamb. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy were all written by Moses. And that was about 1,500 years before Christ was on this earth. 1,500 years beforehand. And he talks, the instructions in Numbers are about the Passover lamb. And it says that the no bones should be broken on the Passover lamb. That if his bones are broken, he's unclean. He's not fit to be the Passover lamb. We've seen Jesus is the high priest who is not only the high priest, but he is the perfect Passover lamb. Are his bones broken? They get to Jesus and what do they find? He's already dead. No need to break his bones. Isaiah chapter 53 describes the death of Christ as well. 
we read this one, this whole, this whole uh, chapter here. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Where Jesus was beat to within an inch of his life. There's no beauty there. It's just gruesome. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, or with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, crucified between two thieves. And with a rich man, it is death. Joseph Arimathea. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be acquainted, uh, be accounted righteous, and he shall bear the, their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That sounds like something that could be straight out of the Gospel of John, does it not? Yet this was written 700 years before Christ was ever born. Fulfilled to detail. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 says this. John actually quotes it here uh, in, in talking about, about his his body being broken, the fact that his, his, his legs would not be broken, which we saw that in Psalm 69. He also says that, uh, that they pierced him, right? That he had been pierced. Uh, verse, uh, it's actually, that's also in Psalm 22, I believe. I think it's also in Isaiah 53. And, uh, and then here again, also in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, it says this, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, of whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And when they pierced Christ, what came out? Blood and water. The blood pointing to the sacrificial lamb and the blood that must be spilt. And what has Jesus been telling his disciples in his last days? I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Water, representing the Holy Spirit. And before you think I'm crazy about that, in Zechariah chapter 14, it describes the tabernacles. Remember Jesus had said, I'm the living water? It was, he is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. We talked about this in John chapter 7. 
Um, and it says uh, in, in Zechariah chapter uh, 14, it says, um, on that day, this is the, the day of the Lord, which this particular aspect is probably referring to the crucifixion. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea it will continue in summer as in winter. The scriptures say or often refer to the coming of the Holy Spirit as an outpouring of water. And here Jesus has been the crucified lamb and he will send out the spirit. Blood and water flow forth from. Now there are natural reasons for that for sure. But John does not give details without reason. John does not give details without reason. Finally, where is Jesus crucified? What's around him? Where is he buried? It's in a garden. Right, let's look at that. Look, look at the end of, of, the, of, the, of the section here. It says, um, now, verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which one had not, had not yet been laid. Now, again, think about this. Jesus is crucified and buried in a garden. Where was he arrested? The garden, right? And in his resurrection, where is he raised from the dead? In a garden. Now, how does the Bible bookend? Genesis chapter 2, where are God's people placed? A garden. Revelation 21 and 22 describes the eternal city, describes the city that we will live in forever, and describes it very much in similar kind of form and fashion as the Garden of Eden was described. Here we have at the very climax of Scripture. We see all of Scripture is pointing to one thing, and that is the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. These events that John is describing, this is the climax of the entire Bible. Shown just in these small details, like the fact that there's a garden. Showing in all these details of how all of Scripture is pointing to Christ. Too often, we come to our Bibles and we say, you know what, I'm having a down day. I don't feel so good. Let me read a verse. Oh, that makes me feel better. That is not how God meant for His Scripture to be written. Now, in fact, that is... God can use that and can encourage us through Scripture. But let us never come to Scripture as if it's some kind of therapy. Scripture is not therapy. Scripture is a story about the God of the universe who came to bring salvation to you. Amen. Through death on the cross. We must read Scripture through the lens of the cross. And secondly, we must trust Jesus alone for salvation. I'll be brief. We have seen how 1,500 years of prophecy is all fulfilled in detail at the cross. Amen. People from different time periods, 1,500 years, 1,000 years, think about that. You're like, well, 1,500, 1,000, 700, whatever. Those are just numbers. How long has America been a country? Anybody know off the top of their head? Come on, patriots. A couple hundred years, right? It's a long time, isn't it? 500 years separate the prophecies from Genesis through Deuteronomy to the prophecies in Psalms. 300 more years separate the prophecies from Psalms to the prophecies in Isaiah. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. All of Scripture is pointing at Christ. How could you not believe? How could you not believe? If that's not enough, 
all of Scripture was written with one story in mind, that we might know that there is salvation. If you look around you, we live in a pretty messed up world, do we not? There is sin everywhere. Sin means to miss the mark. To sin means to miss the mark. What is the mark that we're, that we're aiming at or that should, that's being aimed at in the word sin? It's God's holy perfection. If you were to be honest with yourself, you would have to realize you miss the mark. I miss the mark. I am a sinner. I'm a person who is defined by my sin or could be defined by my sin if it wasn't for Christ. In Isaiah 53, which you read just a second ago, Christ's death happens so that we might have life, not just life, not just some like, hey, I died for you. Aren't you guys, don't you think that's nice? In, in, in believing in Jesus, your righteousness, which we just described as sin, which we just described, which uh, in other places of scripture are, are described as filthy rags, as descri- are described as dung, which is a really polite way of saying, yeah, you know. That's us on our best day. Our righteousness, me being a good person, when I help an old lady across the street, God looks at that and says, that's dung. When I gave my life to Christ, I traded my righteousness for his righteousness. Amen. Guys, there's nothing good in Justin. The only good in me is Christ. If you are a believer today, the only good in you is Christ. If you are not a believer today, the truth of the matter is there is nothing good in you. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are the very enemy of God. But Christ died on a cross so that you might have life. All we need to do is trust him. Put our faith, put our trust, believe that that death and resurrection can save you. And he offers that freely. There's no cost to it. How could you pay for it ever? How on earth could I pay for the salvation of my soul? There's not enough money on this earth. Take all the money of all the wealthiest people in the world could never come even close to paying for one soul. So God offers it freely. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So there's my two exhortations to you. One, we must read scripture through the lens of the cross. We must shift how we read our Bibles. We must read our Bibles very much like John reads his Bible, like John tells us to read our Bibles by the way he proclaims the crucifixion. We must read scripture through the lens of the cross. And second, we must trust Jesus alone for salvation. As we move into a time of invitation, there's nothing special about an invitation. 